1: was RKG-3 grenades. Like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms, fire, RPG fire. Explosively
0: formed penetrators. Suicide bombs.
1: And then that's about the time that the third IED went off.
0: And that's when another grenade
1: comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point, the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the
0: ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight.
1: Welcome to the Spear the podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Major Corey Faison, a simulations officer stationed here at West Point, who was an infantry officer before switching over. Corey, welcome to The Spear. Thanks for having me. I'd like to know, what brought you into the Army in the first place?
0: So I enlisted in the Army back in 2001, before the Twin Towers got hit, um, as a a medic, Um, and then Went on to continue as enlisted, as enlisted soldier um, and got offered the opportunity for a ROTC Green to Gold scholarship for two years. I had already been doing two years of school at the time, and then went on ahead and did this, uh, got accepted to Augusta State University, which is now Augusta University down in Augusta, Georgia. Um, and once the program started, school and uh, once I commissioned, I commissioned as an armor officer initially. Sooner later, when I, when I took over my my platoon uh, over down in Fort Hood, Texas. Um, while I was deployed to Afghanistan, my my company commander, battalion commander, brigade commander wanted me to switch over to infantry. Uh, so I went on ahead and, and submitted the paperwork to switch over to infantry. I uh, submitted so while I was deployed to, to Afghanistan to uh, to HRC, and then within 30 days got switched over to, to infantry at the time.
1: And since then, you've switched over to functional
0: area 57. Correct. Yeah. What prompted some of that change? So at at the time when I was infantry, I had finished my first and second com- company command, and uh, I was working for a two star at the time, and uh, he kind of helped guided me through. And like you know, I had already had so much time and years of service in the military at the time, and he was like, "You maybe should start looking at some other options after army. You got to get yourself set up." Um, as far as additional skill sets and certifications. So I started looking at some other things. He kind of, he kind of recommended me to start looking at function areas. And so I kind of looked at the function area simulations, kind of like, okay, I, that gets me in the, in the world of doing, working with new technology. Eventually, also still being able to work with soldiers to a certain extent for training, still training soldiers to a certain level. Um, so I figured that's, that was the, the kind of the, the function area that I wanted to go into. And
1: the formal training pipeline for the functional area, what was that like?
0: Uh, so, you, you go through this, the, the SOC course, um, which is the Simulation Operations course, and then there's some additional skill uh, courses that you could take uh, following taking that course. Like you could, t- you could take the Digital Master Gunner course, which teaches you, teaches you that not only how to integrate certain um, network systems, but also learning how to, to take the Program of Record Mission Command Information Systems. Your AFA TADS, at the time was CPOF, now CPCE learning how to integrate all those systems for a battalion, brigade, and division staff, even core. Is that a school you attended? That is a school I attended. That, that, is, that was the second school I, t- I attended after the SOC course. There's also knowledge management courses you could take as well, um, which at the time was in- included in the SOC course. I'm not sure if it is now. There are also some additional civilian courses you could take, um, like your Security Plus, work in the Computer Skills Network.
1: Before you were in F.A. 57, you were a lateral transfer infantry officer. You were an armor officer. You were an ROTC cadet. Yeah. And you were a medic. Yeah. <laughs> in all of that, probably a few deployments.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I had I had I had one deployment to Iraq while I was enlisted, and then uh, before I switched over, and then obviously I had another deployment to Afghanistan and another deployment to Iraq. A fair amount of time spent overseas. And the story you're going to tell us today happens when? Happens in 0809 um in afghanistan when i was a platoon leader at the time a first lieutenant scout platoon leader and uh i was actually working over in the nuristan province you're in nuristan you're a scout platoon leader you are an infantry officer you're still an armor officer at that time i was an armor officer before i was getting ready to switch over
1: so i I misled our listeners earlier it sounds like
0: (laughs) what's going on in
1: afghanistan and in nuristan specifically when you're there
0: uh, so then you have, at the time, you have Cop Lowell, which is way up northeast, which is like one of the furthest cops further up north. And then you also have uh, Cop Keating, which I'm sure a lot of people know about, which is about 10 kilometers west of Cop Lowell. Uh, those cops were the, f- the furthest north cops as far as conventional army uh, up north. Um, and really it was kind of set up almost like setting up a screen to prevent Taliban f- or additional forces from moving in from the northeast to come down south through Pakistan, um, through Afghanistan on south to go into, as far as warfighters going into Kunar uh, Q- province.
1: How big is the unit you're there with?
0: Uh, about a company minus, not even that much. So about two platoons and, and uh, an actual and also a mortar platoon as well. So, were you the cop commander, or no? So, my company commander, since we we're so far out north, so out, so far up north, the the company commander came up with us with his two companies, or two, excuse me, two platoons, mortar platoon. We even had our own um, PA at the time. You had the PA because since when it came to uh, getting, receiving any type of medical treatment, it, it was like almost with over an over an hour to get anything up there to get any support. Um, so, you had, we had to have our own doc up there um, in case people got hurt and got shot. So that's just how things were back then.
1: What are you riding around in at this point? I'm assuming it's mostly vehicle mounted.
0: No, no vehicles. There's no roads. <laughs> Everything was flown in. Everything was flown through CH-47, UH-60. Um, UH-60 at that elevation, is struggling to fly at that elevation. You could fly UH-60, but I mean, your CH-47 was the main thing that flew up there and also your A 64s. So there is no roads. So patrols are all done on foot? Correct. All on foot. Or we're doing either anything with, with an, almost like an air assault mission, but nothing really. So we barely, I think I did like one mission up to like that. But mostly it was all, all on foot.
1: And what's going on in the area surrounding Kap Lowell?
0: Um, a Kap Lowell, you have a few um, villages around there. Um, you have Cop. you're not Cop. you have Kamu, you have Marek um, you have some other uh, other small villages that's kind of sporadic, even further up closer to, uh, to Cop Keating as well. Um, and, and really, a lot of those folks, they were looking, they're taking money from the Taliban. Okay, The Taliban says, go do this against Americans. We'll give you money, give you food, you know, to help support your family. And that's they took it. A lot of the folks just took, took advantage of the, of the opportunity. Even though we would go speak to them, on a separate hand, and be like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're trying to fight it. We're with you guys. We're fighting against them. And it's this back and forth lying and all this stuff. But that's just how things were. How big is a scout platoon? Probably about 30, no more than 30 soldiers in a platoon. I think it was mine. My, my platoon, I had about 28 that I deployed. And then my, I was actually in 1st platoon. 2nd uh, platoon was actually down at Fod Fenty with the battalion, or squadron, actually. And then 3rd platoon was with us as well, over at a Cop Lowell. And you, a platoon sergeant, how many sections or squads? So I had three squads, and, uh, and that's about it, just three squads. And then and, and platoon sergeant, obviously, typical. But they were smaller squads, though, so, I mean, it's not as big as, as a real infantry platoon. It was a little bit smaller.
1: And were these all 11 Bravos, or were they no, armor these, folks that these, were out walking? These,
0: these are actually your scout guys. So these are 19 Charlies excuse me 19 deltas not 19 charlie 19 deltas yeah um, your 19 kilos are tankers your 19 deltas are your scouts um and then your 19 charlie is actually a scout officer so were you a 19 charlie or at the time i was considered as a 19 charlie so i was in the position as a 19 charlie so as an armor officer you come in as a 19 kilo or 19 was 19 alpha and then if you're in a scout platoon you're considered as a 19 charlie
1: and what's a typical week like for you
0: so out there, it's beautiful out there. So the country, the mountains, I mean, it's it's gorgeous out there. You, so a lot of the platoons will switch back and forth. So a platoon would be on rotation for pulling patrols, or the other platoon will be pulling security on the cop and also doing random tasks, almost like a red and green cycle tasking almost that we kind of set up. The one that's pulling uh, the red cycle tasks where they're actually pulling security, they're also doing like KP stuff because we didn't have you know, your typical kbr at a, at a big giant fob. It, it was just your, your cooks that you had um that was actually attached to you and they uh they provided these bulk mres and that was that's what you got <laughs> and that was it now your your platoon that was on patrol usually have to go through mission briefs you'll get your your intel updates either through a battalion. Time give you, you know, this is what the intel is, S2 is telling us what's going on out here. Um, and based upon that, you kind of figure out, okay, this is what we want to do based upon the intel they receive. Um, so it could be from doing reconnaissance missions, it could be um, setting up an ambush if you're trying to chase after a high value target, things of that nature, or just to do, we have to meet with the local, you know, populace in the certain, certain villages, which is really for us is by three.
1: And the story we're going to zero in on today you're
0: on Green Cycle, you're out patrolling? Correct, on patrol, yep. How long have you been out? So we actually were planning to get ready to execute this mission like at like zero, one, 100 hours in the morning on a Tuesday. Just getting ready to execute. We were getting ready to set up an ambush actually on that mission. Um, do a recon and all that kind of stuff and then set the ambush in, in place. Actually getting ready to go after a certain intel of high value target as well as some, some soldiers out there. Or not soldiers, the Taliban.
1: So a high value target in his entourage? Pretty much. What did you know about him?
0: The biggest thing that I knew about him, that he was actually, actually trying to corral more people to fight on his side, to fight for the Taliban side against the Americans. They hated the Americans, so that was his big thing that we knew about him. Um, and he also had weapon caches set up in certain locations, too. So that was one of another missions sets we were sending up to try to go do was later on. But the intel that we received was that he was moving to a certain location along a certain route. And so we, we actually just capitalized on that, tried to see if we could set up an ambush and get him. And how many soldiers did you take out on the ambush? So we took, I took, and that, on that I took like a squad plus about probably about 18 soldiers at the time. And then we also took like a squad of like 10 ANA, Afghan National Army, because they're also there stationed with us as well. The ANA, how good's their English? Or You might have one or two that kind of caught on to English a little bit, but m- the majority of them didn't. And then you also have to think, too, another thing that, that we capitalize on, we also had to bring our interpreters. So the interpreters that I brought, they all, spot, they all spoke uh, the native language further south, but then I had to bring another interpreter because the folks further up north speak a different dialect. So I have two interpreters trying to translate information, which made it e- things even more difficult. But not for the ANA, just for the local populace.
1: And the interpreters had come from the local area or had come from Kabul?
0: No, they had come from Kabul. So the one we had, the one we had, came, from, had came from Kabul... The one for the local populace, we didn't bring. He actually did come from the local populace, and my commander really wasn't, he really wasn't fond of him at all because he knew a lot of the folks within the local populace, but he was the only one that, was, that spoke the dialect. He understood not only that dialect, but also the dialect for the South.
1: So you would say something to your interpreter, your interpreter would then say it to the, to the local interpreter, he, and it would then get translated again. So
0: you could just imagine how much information would get, tra- get lost in translation. Goodness. Yeah, it <laughs> made things very difficult, and probably
1: slowed decision making time for you down.
0: Oh yeah, most definitely. If if when you're meeting with the local people, but this mission wasn't wasn't that particular time we brought him with us. So,
1: you said the mission was planning to start at 0-1 on a Tuesday.
0: Correct. We're getting ready to head out at 0-1. That should go do our recon and everything get, and get everything set up. Yeah. What happened? So, zero one zero dark thirty, we head out. We sp. Um, we start going down this trail and then started going up the mountain through um, through a draw. So if I could try to explain, there's there's a particular river that comes down that separates between Coppolo and this big, huge mountain face. And then we're on the actual south side of that river. Um, so we move up. We continue to move up through the route. At the same time, I also have a machine gun team with one of my squad leaders who I tell them to go see it sit in position. So we're communicating back and forth as we're planning to maneuver, he's bound at a certain location, and as soon as he's set, we bound, because he's providing overwatch with, for us as we're so you So I have one 240 machine gun team set up in on one location, then I have a second one moving with me so I can maneuver and put him where he needs to be if I have to. And so we're continuing to move up through the draw, and it takes a while because the mountains are steep as you're walking, and you're carrying a lot of equipment, so it, it gets kind of heavy and arduous as you're moving through the mountains. And then as daylight breaks, we get to our certain checkpoint that we had set up on one of the maps on to corner of our plan um, to actually start breaking down to get ready to go set up a recon. So we got to recon the location to make sure we can set up the ambush in certain positions where everybody's supposed to be at. As soon as we get ready to break and separate, my machine gun team is still where they're at with, with some of the ANA, and I also have some of the, AM, the ANA with me. Next thing you know, RPG kicks off kicks off before we even get the ambush They actually do the recon for the ambush. At this time, we had been moving for, for probably about a couple hours, it's about zero four. Light was about to break here shortly. I can remember the RPG going off and my machine gun team letting me know, I see guys on the far side of, of the draw. So if you can imagine, it's in the middle between, almost like a valley, but in the actual draw of between two hillsides, and you can see enemy on the top cliff over us Shooting RPGs and starting to engage with um, PKMs and AK-47s. They go as probably like two PKMs, um, engages down in the draw. Then my machine gunner is starting to engage at the guys across, across the draw from us. At the same time, I tell my, my machine gunner to get over in this position over here and start engaging. I also have my tell one of my squad leaders to set up the Ultra 249 gunner in a certain position south of where my location is to draw further a little bit for the south to not only defend. The bottom of the draw to make sure we don't get flanked, um, but then I have guys up further up the hill to take cover and make sure we don't get taken above. Is forced fling from the top of the hill. At the same time, I get on the con- I get on the phone, not the phone, but on the actual radio and contact my commander and let him know what the situation is, and ask for indirect fire support. So at that time we had we had 60s and 120s. We didn't bring the 60 with us, which we probably should have, but we didn't. So we asked for 120 support he started slinging 120s in the grids where my, my actual um, machine gun team had observation on. So he kind of took control and made sure he could see what, where the enemy was at, at the same time. At the same time, the cop gets hit at the same time while we're getting hit down in the draw. We were probably about a good three, four kilometers away. And then the cop's getting hit at the same time, we're getting hit at the same time. And then next thing you know, machine gunners, were, uh, guys back at Cop low, were stating, okay, we see guys on the far side of... of or on the north side of the mountainside across the river, actually maneuvering on top of you guys. They can see them probably, probably get three or four clicks as well and then maneuvering on the, on the actual far side to try to hem us up so we can't come out of the draw and come back a certain trouble. We wanted to go back out to exfil if we had to. So we're almost kind of like being trapped in this draw. Next thing we're calling in a whole bunch of 120s, 120s. We're standing put still, putting on fire. We can't really maneuver like we want to because they had us pinned down. My machine gun team is still move, shooting gang, engaging as, he is, as he's supposed to. As all that's going on, this firefight was on and off. It was going on for about three hours. At the same time, we actually ended up getting some A-10 support. A-10 support came on through, and we kind of laid our smoke out to see where our location. So I took control of the radio, telling them where we, were, where we were located. I told one of my square leaders to lay down some smoke, multiple, multiple pieces of smoke further away so you could see, okay, we're over here in this draw, both directions. You can see the smoke flying up in the air. Don't shoot along this linear portion of where the smoke's at. And so and at the same time, the my machine gun guy, guy was telling me, okay, they're over here on this far side of the mountain. And then the actual A-10 pilot was telling me that, yeah, we see the actual guys when they were just lighting them up with the A-10 on the actual s- north side of the mountain across the river where they had us pinned in from filling from natural draw. So A-10 was taking them out we're still trying to engage back and forth this on and on they kind of stopped a little bit then we stopped then it started shooting again and it was back and forth the whole time for about three hours straight once the a10 started taking out a lot of the guys on the far side on the north side of the river um then they actually started going ahead and engaging guys along where we were at close to where we we're at probably like a good five six hundred meters away um engaged with a10 and then once all that kind of like went away there was, it was just a bunch of quietness and then i at the time, my company commander had told us that we're, we were going red on 120s because they had shot at least, I think, about 180 rounds of 120-millimeter mortars. And then following that, we once the, once the actual firefight was over with, we we kind of went up a little bit to see where all the bodies were, if there were any bodies we saw a few bodies up there, kind of did like a clearing process to clear that whole mountainside, almost like a ridge, and uh, clear that whole ridge side, and then, once we were complete, we moved down and went back to, to Cop Lowell. We didn't go across the river to see any dead bodies on the other far side. We said, bump that, we're not going over there. So <laughs> we saw the bodies on the other side of where, where we were located at. But following that, I mean, it, it was, that was a really interesting experience because that was kind of like my real firefight where they kind of like outmaneuvered us. Most of the time, the few firefighters I had been in while I was there initially, we, we kind of outmaneuvered them, but at one point in time, they kind of outsmarted us. So I had the upper hand on us. And I don't know how they had the upper hand on us, but somehow they knew we were coming. And they knew where to be, which is kind of awkward. But, yeah. When you stepped off,
1: mm-hmm. were you on night vision goggles? or were you? We were.
0: We were on night vision. That's why it took a little bit longer to get to where we had to go because you're, you're walking up mountainsides and hills just to get to where you need to go with actual PBS 14s. Low illumination? High illumination? Illumination was pretty good. Illumination was pretty good. I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was pretty good and there they were oh yeah yeah they started off with just a rpg <laughs> and then and, and it's, it's interesting because the the tactics that they start off with is just like how we would do if we were going to set up an ambush you know we're taught to you know set it off with either a machine gun or a claymore they set it off with RP, the rpg and then they start going at it how close did that rpg get to your soldiers oh it was way off they, it was horrible shot horrible shot it was way off we, got, I was, we were very fortunate that none of my soldiers during this whole ambush got killed. They were horrible shots, horrible shots. Because the distance between us and them, especially when the, and you would think they would have the upper hand, they, would, they had the upper hand being on top of the hill, but they were just were not, they weren't shooting anything. I mean, they were shooting at the rocks. We were behind, hiding behind rocks too as well. But the shots were just horrible.
1: So they were high and right, high and left, just splattering into the rocks? Mostly,
0: mostly high and right. They weren't on high and left, they were high and right. So it's almost like they're almost like an l shaped ambushed that's exactly what it was. they were higher right to to our right as we we're going up the draw they're to the top right of us, I would say going east or going west, excuse me and then and then you had the other guys to the north, which are, but actually across the river, so they wouldn't even be able to come across the river because that river's so fast moving to flank us to actually move and actually do what an actual ambush is where you come to clear but yeah that. It was, set, it was
1: set up that same way. How far away are you from them when that initial RPG shot comes in?
0: They were probably like a good 700 meters, six, 700 meters away.
1: It kind of the outer range of an RPG round oh, for yeah. accuracy to begin with.
0: They didn't really want to engage us like that, but it was horrible. But yeah, they, they were. If you look at the mountaintop, if you saw the mountaintop and envisioned it, it, it was kind of high up a little bit, and we were stuck in the draw. So. When you've called for the mortar fire, how long before those first rounds start coming in? It was probably like a good five to ten minutes, not that long. They are already, I had already coordinated with the mortar platoon starting to be on ready and be on call as we maneuver, and so he was ready to go. So probably within five, eight minutes, five to ten minutes, he was ready to go.
1: Did the 120s, as their landing start to impact the rate of fire, or no impacts?
0: A little bit. I think if they it slowed down, because I think they were realized because we start my machine gun team. Uh, with the squalid up there, was actually walking around on them. And so it started to slow down, as, as, and then eventually they had to let the tubes cool down. We only had two tubes because we were shooting for so long, and then it picked back up again. Because it was almost as if they were, okay, we're getting hit. Let's stop shooting so they don't see us. And then they, they maneuver out, and then come back again and start shooting again. Because somebody, and I would assume probably across the river, was telling them what, what we were doing.
1: So one of, the, one of the enemy on the north side of the river was probably spotting. Correct.
0: That's exactly what they were doing. How much did you know was going on back down at the cop? Uh, we were hearing, so, I was also hearing, because uh, I switched to certain channels to see what was going on, as, as we were trying to talk in our own situation, and also trying to talk to the birds. But I also heard that the security platoon back there was saying, we're pulling fire, we're actually getting fired back here as well. So all of them are getting fired, they were getting hit as well, in a tick.
1: So this was this was coordinated? Oh yeah,
0: most definitely. It was most definitely coordinated. They knew what they were doing. <laughs>
1: And you're clearly the target.
0: Oh, yeah. So they're attacking the cop.
1: Mm -hmm. Does that put you on the mountainside as the target? Or were you just, you think the cop was the actual target and you happened to be out that day?
0: I think the cop was the actual target, to be honest. And it just worked out in their favor um, that we were already out there. It, It might have surprised them that we were out there, and then they actually engaged us at the same time as they are getting ready to maneuver to attack the cop. Um, but I think once they saw us out there, they, they also said, okay, let's hit the cop at the same time, but then let's take advantage of this because we see them out here.
1: Did the cop get hit by indirect fire? It
0: did, 81s. And how often before this had the cop been hit? Um, so as soon as we got hit, um, they, they hit us, and then probably a good probably 15, 20 minutes later, I would assume 15, 20 minutes later because I was already in contact, because I heard, I heard the radio about 50, 20 minutes later. So I think they were probably say, okay, let's start shooting them. I think they were probably trying to try and take out our mortar system back at, back at Cop Lowell, but that, they were no success at all with that either. Did you call and ask for air, or did air get pushed to you? Air got pushed. So that's kind of a thing we, especially when we're out there, the air if air's on station, we can get it. And so they, air got pushed to us. Did you have a JTAC with you, or was there a JTAC at the cop? JTAC at the cop wasn't with us. So he was controlling all the things there and then he actually pushed it to me to make sure I could see everything was on the grounds. And then once that was it, once I told him where we're at, he, I pushed him back to the JTAC.
1: What is going on in your head
0: when that first RPG shot happens? Like, really? Like they ambushed us and I'm thinking, okay. First I had to take, had to take what's called like a tactical pause. I had to just start, think we're getting hit. And a tactical pause just happens so quick Things are happening, but like you kind of get your thoughts together and you're like, OK, I know what I got to do now. So <laughs> and it just And then you just start making decisions um, at first. It startled me because it, it shocked us because we didn't think that we were going to was going to be an ambush on us, obviously. But uh, when it when it went off, um, took a, tad, a pause and then just start telling people to get in some positions. And a lot of the soldiers know what they got to do. They know, OK, if we get hit with a near ambush or a far ambush, they know because we've trained for this. We were training and trained for this constantly all the time in case this happens because it was a common practice where they always set up some sort of coordinated attack against American soldiers. Even if, even at cops, they would just do that. Um, so we were trained for that, and they just knew what to do to get into positions. And obviously, you have my squad leaders who I depended on greatly. Smart men, awesome staff sergeants. They put soldiers in place to make sure they were safe, um, and then also engage once they made an assessment quick enough. The decisions you made, what... Would you do differently? Oh, perfectly. So I wouldn't have taken the same route. I think when it comes to terrain analysis, when, when you're picking your route for doing certain missions, think about the terrain analysis think about terrain analysis and figure out what routes you want to take so you don't get ambushed. That plays key. I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from that. Um, and ever since then I made sure not to be just walking up through a draw unless it was something very simple. You know, quick and simple, where I set up certain positions to move guys up as far as overwatch. But I never walk through a draw, even though it may be easier. Take the ridgeline if you can, because then you can see both sides of the mountain. And I would tell that to any lieutenant now, you know. Do your terrain analysis. Once you get the intel of what the enemy weapon systems have and what, what they can do, the capabilities, think about how they would think. How would the enemy think of position their, their people uh, to do an ambush or do, to do actual attack, a frontal attack, or whatever that may be? and then look at the terrain. If I was them, I would do this. And they did, and what they did is what I would do, because that's exactly what we were gonna do. We were literally gonna set up on a ridge line, like they did, and aim down into a draw, or a valley. We wouldn't have been that far away, but we would have did exactly what they did. So, I mean, it it comes down to how do do you fight, and how does the enemy fight? Those are things you gotta think about, and do your research, and read up on it, and study, and do analysis. Was
1: there a moment in the ambush when you thought things were going to turn against you?
0: Yeah, I thought that when I heard, when I had heard that they had guys setting up in positions to the north of us facing towards a draw, I thought that, okay, yeah, they're they're just going to shoot a lot of RPGs down into that draw and we're going to be, that was it. Like, that was, there was nothing I could do, really. I mean, I could fight my way up north, or no, north, up the actual draw. Which would have been, it would have been even a real hard fight, could do, but that pro- I probably would have lost a lot of soldiers because of that. And that would have been a, the best decision to make. Especially my, my gunner was providing, the actual Machine Gun Team was providing a lot of support, and they had brought up quite a bit of ammo to set up on the actual OP that I needed in BF for Overwatch. So it worked out, and luckily we were able to get enough, get air support, and also have indirect fire support, which helped out immensely. I think one of the things too is, is learning how to call indirect fire. Make sure your NCOs know how to call indirect fire, because that's key if you have somebody providing Overwatch make sure they know how to do all that stuff as well, not just the lieutenant. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing is making sure that your, your subordinates, especially your, your leaders below you, know how to do, you know how to do their jobs, but they know how to do your job if something happens to you so they can get your soldiers back home safely.
1: When those initial rounds come in, you've taken your tactical pause. Are you then yelling, Sergeant Jones, do X, Sergeant Smith, do Y, or did they just
0: instinctively pick up? Really, they picked up and, and got, because they instinctively know you take cover when you start and we take the initial hit so we can see where the rounds are coming from. Once we make an assessment where, where the enemy fire is coming from, my biggest thing is I'm, I'm looking up the hill. I'm looking at the bottom of the hill. I'm also looking up top above us to see where it's coming from the, for either one of the sides. I know from my left side that my machine gun team is on that side. So obviously there's, there's a point where, okay, I know that they didn't encounter any type of enemy when they were going up to their overwatch position, but I'm looking to the other side of where I am and they had to the come from over there to up, up, up the draw or to the south of the draw. So my biggest thing is to pull in. make sure we could, we could cover all those directions up, no, uh, down, and then also up, up the after draw. My biggest thing is they saw what the enemy coming to fire. So my certain NCOs that I had were actually engaging back with the enemy up where the enemy was shooting from. And then I had made sure that my gun team, my other second, my second machine gun team was setting uh, further down south not south, but further down towards the river, down at the base of the draw to make sure they can engage enemy um, if they can't try to flank us. And then I had my actual one of my NCOs took up a two four nine gunner up further up the hill to make sure we didn't get flanked from up top that way.
1: Did the actions of any particular soldier stand out to you on that day?
0: Oh, yeah. My guy that was, he actually, he actually ended up getting a, a BSMV. so one of my two four nine gunner. He actually went up there, and it really was just, I was looking at all the avenues approach. So he made sure the avenue approach where they could come down that hill. He made sure to stop that. He actually engaged a couple of guys trying to come down and point their guns down at the actual, because they came around to try to shoot down at the top of that draw. And he shot and engaged some, and got some guys at the top of the draw. He actually ended, he actually ended up getting a BSM with V because of that.
1: Young specialist?
0: Oh, yeah, young specialist, yeah.
1: What did that do morale-wise for the rest of your platoon afterwards?
0: I think for the simple fact that I mean we were exhausted. When we got back, we were exhausted. I think for the the biggest thing is that nobody died, nobody got killed. I think for the morale, that really. And then we actually, I mean, it sucked. What we got, we got hit and we got ambushed on a mission that we were supposed to be doing the ambushing. But the biggest morale booster for everybody was that nobody died. We all got back home safely. And we were good to go. Nobody got injured besides like probably like a rolled ankle or something like that. We had like a few rolled ankles, but besides that, no. And there was nobody died. The HVT got away. Apparently he might have been with them. I'm not sure, but we didn't see his body out there. So
1: after the battle, you've come back to the cop. Mm-hmm. Weapons, gear, self. Do you get moved into red cycle or are you
0: still on green? And- no, we're still no, we're still on green. Uh, only thing is we don't go out the next day. We kind of regroup, free, free thing about you know the mission analysis, what the enemy did, what went wrong. Obviously, you do your typical AR. You know when you get back and see and make an assessment. Okay how do we fix this how do we fix this to make sure this this doesn't happen again um it came down to like I mentioned before the terrain analysis um as a petroleum as a leader I'm looking and anal- an- analyzing that extra terrain to make sure we don't go certain routes again in the same way and then also okay confirming with intel with S2 is okay are you legit is this correct cuz what you told us didn't happen and so I, even when even when S2 gives you something of what they think the enemy might do as a leader, as a combat arms leader, you have to take it upon yourself to really know and think about what the enemy might do because you're the one that's out there engaging them. S2 is not out there. You know, your intel folks are not out there engaging the enemy seeing it day to day. They only get reports. So when you're out there, you're taking all the stuff that comes from the previous platoon, all the information that they got when they're out there doing their patrols and and then looking back at other things of different assessments of different patrols that's been out there, and what until they gather, not the stuff and try to piecemeal that stuff together to try to figure, OK, this is what S2 is saying. But I might disagree with that, because what I know is what my guys, my other platoon, my peer has experienced. And then what I'm experiencing is what this is what we're seeing. And this is what my analysis is going to be. Now, not to say I'm not going to just push away what the S2 is saying is wrong, but I'm going to rethink that and, and think about how does it apply to what how things are going with us? You know, to make another assessment and analyze that, OK, what they say doesn't up with what what's going on out here. So uh, as a, as a young patroller, you, you kind of have to start thinking about those type of things, uh, especially the combat arms. So you just can't just say, okay, I'm just going to go out there and just fight. No, you you have to do a lot of uh, of reading and understanding and an- analysis, analyzing all the information and intel to make sure you can plan a proper mission.
1: Now that you've switched over to F.A. 57,
0: how does that ambush influence what you do? Ooh... I think I think the biggest thing for sure, and this is one thing I'm trying since I've been here for about a month and a half and observed a lot of different things. One thing I would love to do, which I'm still working on, is, is working with augmented reality um, and trying to get either your sophomores and juniors to understand what planning, uh, working through their TIPs and planning a mission utilizing terrain analysis. So if I could use either VR or AR, so with AR, we could say, okay, bring up a map on a augmented reality platform of some sort and put it on your head and then see what you see as far as on an augmented reality. And then how do you actually go to this specific location where this map is actually is on your augmented reality headset? And what does that look like? You know, Is it really true to what you see and how do you plan and what changes will you make to your plan that you are that you planning in augmented reality? In virtual reality, you could do the same thing. I mean, I could give you a West Point a West Point map in virtual reality and think, okay, what's the terrain analysis of how would you put your if if, if S two or somebody tells you this is what the enemy set is, how would you set your your platoon up to do an ambush or some any type of mission set that you wanted to do? And based upon terrain analysis, is S two wrong? Or do you think based upon this analysis you wouldn't do it, you think the enemy's gonna do this instead? Those are the type of things they should start to think about. And you could do that in class and do it in VR or even AR. You don't have to actually go out there. You could go out there if you wanted to. But I think learning to do that type of analysis for planning purposes is key. And understanding what your enemy is going to do, what capabilities they have, you know, is, is really key. That's, that's a part of the art. That is a part of the, the art of trying to plan.
1: Well, Corey, thanks for providing us a story about you know what you weren't expecting and what went wrong, and then some le- ways forward to how to improve the Army and improve troop-leading procedures going forward. Most definitely. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point.